Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Hebrews 11.1 states, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Too many of today's Christians spend more time documenting the all-too-prevalent evils in our world and thus get discouraged and, quite frankly, discourage others. In other words, instead of walking by faith, they walk by sight. And when you walk by sight, that leads to a loss of hope. My guest today is Dr. Joseph Boot. And the reason I've asked him to join us is that I am eager to introduce him to my audience. Dr. Boot is a Christian thinker, cultural apologist, philosopher, and founder of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity, a worldview training organization and think tank with offices in the U.S., Canada, and the UK. And he's also the author of the book, The Mission of God, A Manifesto of Hope for Society. And I've asked him to join us today to address that question. Why does society need a manifesto of hope? Dr. Boot, thanks for joining me. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show, Andrea. So the subtitle of your book, The Mission of God, is A Manifesto of Hope for Society. So I decided let's look up the word manifesto. What is a manifesto? I think most people will say, well, I remember the communist manifesto, and that's probably the one manifesto that everybody sort of knows. But the definition, as I found online, was a published declaration of the intentions, motives, or views of the issuer, be it an individual group, political party, or government. A manifesto usually accepts a previously published opinion or public consensus or promotes a new idea with prescriptive notions for carrying out changes the author believes should be. So, Dr. Boot, what's your prescription and what's the diagnosis that produced this prescription? Well, it's interesting that definition actually as it stands because in in one sense i would say that uh the mission of god and uh what's contained in it uh is previously previously published uh it's um, published in the word of god um because uh i seek to try and base my prescription on the scriptures and it's inspired by great um uh, thinkers like Cornelius Van Til and R.J. Rushduni and Herman Doyverd and others uh, who blazed a trail um, in this um, in this particular area. So that whole idea of a, a manifesto of setting out a particular vision uh, and mission is what I had in mind uh, when I when I wrote the book. I wanted to enter actually, Andrea, the theological um, area of the missiologists. Some of my background in study is in the area of uh, Christian missiology. Missiology, as you will know, uh, is the basically the study of, of what it means for uh, Christians to extend the reality of the kingdom of God. 
and uh, but missiology as a as a discipline so as christians think about what it means to defend the faith to evangelize to share the gospel uh to uh, extend the kingdom i found and discovered that many people had uh, in the discipline of missiology had actually or the missio day the mission of god had actually lost sight of the biblical prescription of the biblical manifesto and they were trying to baptize karl marx um and various other thinkers uh, through social justice movements and so on as the uh, a christian response so they had t- taken isolated verses of the bible uh, about justice and mercy and the need for their recovery but then filled them with their own meaning and so i wanted to enter with this book a uh, the discussion of the missiologists uh and to sort of as a trojan horse as it were kind of that was the initial idea was be a trojan horse and sneak in uh with this book um the mission of god into that debate around what is the calling of the christian in the world and so that's how uh i kind of both came up with the the title and also uh reflected on the idea of a manifesto because of course it's not my manifesto it's uh it's god's manifesto my, my my attempt that's why i've called it the mission of god what i'm attempting to do fallibly and uh within my the context of my own limitations is to articulate what is god's vision for the world what is it that god is calling his people to do and in a nutshell my prescription is all of christ for all of life that what we need to do is recover a full-orbed gospel or the gospel of the kingdom and a scriptural world and life view for every area of life if we are going to face the the challenge of a collapsing culture all around us that has abandoned the faith and is re-paganizing is de-christianizing at an incredible rate and so i look to um the reformational tradition and i look to the uh, much of the work of those who followed in uh uh, dr rashduni's footsteps of course he was writing very prophetically back in the 1970s especially and um you know even 20 years ago i was being called a hysteric um well he was writing 50 years ago and talking about many of these things and um well the proof of the pudding is in the eating and uh, here we are we are where we are and so if um if there was never been in my view a greater need for an outlining of this full orbed gospel of the kingdom that rests in a total scriptural world and life view to respond to the crisis of our time in in UK politics i'm um f- familiar with canadian politics of course having lived there for 19 years as well and i'm i've traveled a lot and extensively in the us but in british politics when a political party is campaigning it publishes a manifesto of oh. of what it intends to do what 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 are its policies going to be what's the direction of its uh uh the thrust of its thinking how is it going to apply its policies and so i thought as a subtitle for the book this is this is about the application of the christian world and life view as well it's not just a consideration in the abstract mm-hmm. but what is the concrete requirement of god's law word in every area of life So in going through your book, which I mean at first I started making all sorts of notes of what I was going to ask you and then I realized I don't want him to read the book to everybody. I do want people to get your book. 
but I wanted people to get a taste of why you wrote it and how you wrote it and what your Ezra Institute is about. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of people, well, Ezra, okay, I know that's a book of the Bible. Why Ezra? Why name an institute after Ezra? Explain that if you would. Yeah, that's a good question, actually. The, um, the, the story of the, the prophet Ezra is one of actually, which is, I think, too frequently overlooked. Uh, because when we preach on that period in the churches, and when you hear sermons on that period of the history of Israel in the churches, the, the focus tends to be on Nehemiah. And to some degree, understandably, because Nehemiah is this character who's being opposed by the Sambalats and Tobias, and he's organizing people to rebuild the walls. It's all about the project of, of Nehemiah is about the restoration, ultimately, of the the city and, and of the walls and of rebuilding the life of the covenant people. The person who gets overlooked, it, though, is Ezra very often in the story. And um, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, I understand, historically were actually one book. We, we've separated them into two, but historically they they constituted one account, really, one story. And what Ezra did in the, this period in the history of, of the people of God was he uh, knew that the, the people had become syncretistic in their thinking. They had gone after other gods they'd married pagans they were uh trying to synthesize the pagan culture uh of the surrounding nations with the worship of the living god and so ezra is sent in by the lord amongst the people and he is a scholar he's actually he's not the sword and trow man in terms of the immediacy of the building um but he is a scholar and his purpose is to call people back to the word of God. He calls people in particular back to the law of God in the in the book of Ezra. Uh, and he there's a marvelous, marvelous moment where he's reading the law of God aloud and he's calling the people to repentance and the people are weeping. And the the, the, the reality is what takes place through the work of this um, this scholar who calls people back to the fullness of the word of God and urges them to to abandon their syncretism, the result is actually repentance. So that when Nehemiah then comes and says, right, who's up for rebuilding? There are actually volunteers. Imagine Nehemiah trying to do his work and make his appeal to the people if the work of Ezra had not been done first. If people had not been called back to the law word of God, if people had not been called uh, to abandon their syncretism and had become faithful to the word of God, then when Nehemiah came along and said, right, who wants to rebuild? There wouldn't have been any volunteers. It would have been a, a hopeless task. But because the work of the prophet scholar Ezra came first, then there were volunteers for the rebuilding. Now, I would say we've reached uh, a point in the history of Western civilization, where we know it's obvious to any observant Christian that we are now in a radically syncretistic culture. We are we have been for for some time trying to meld the assumptions and the worldview of humanism, of paganism, 
with the the with Christianity and in some cases in Europe, for example, with now what are just the vestiges of Christianity. So we've had a secularizing movement, a humanistic movement, increasingly a paganizing movement. And this has left many Christians uh, looking very much like a Toyota Prius. A Toyota Prius was one of those early cars that was a hybrid. You know, it was part gas, gas powered, part electric. And so many Christians today are part Christian in their worldview and their perspective and part humanistic, part pagan. We've become syncretistic. And so that when I was thinking through, I mean, I'd been traveling as a Christian apologist for many years, uh, talking to unbelievers in various parts of the West and in, in Asia and in the Middle East and the Far East. And I was used to and accustomed to engaging challenges to the Christian faith. And I got to really reflecting on and thinking about this issue of Christian apologetics, Christian missiology. What was the need of the hour? I recognized and could see that we were in a process of de-Christianization, paganization. Secular humanism was giving way to a to very much to a more overt pagan spirituality but still within the broad assumptions of secularism. And I could see that both in Europe, to a lesser extent, but also to a significant extent in the United States, states, a syncretism was the majority report. The Christian world and life view was collapsing. And I realized that the questions that people were asking were changing. They were moving from the questions that non-believers asked in the context of christendom for example the questions about the authority of the the new testament text questions about the historicity of the resurrection questions about well even the sort of things like the evidential archaeological questions all these sorts of questions that actually you need to be biblically literate to ask that those questions were shifting and they were becoming civilizational questions. Isn't Christianity a colonial imperialistic religion? Isn't it homophobic? Isn't it uh, anti-choice? Doesn't it want to destroy people's freedom? And there was a radical politicizing of the questions and the challenges were increasingly cultural and less about Christian or biblical dogmatics. And so... I, as I was reflecting on the founding of the Institute back in 2008, because we finally founded the Ezra Institute in 2009, I was drawn to the ministry of Ezra. And I thought, well, aren't we in a situation not dissimilar to, to Ezra? We've got a syncretistic people all around us. We've, we've uh, allowed paganism in through the door into our families, our churches, our culture, our civic institutions, our political life. The Christian world and life view is collapsing uh, and we need to rebuild and the desperate need is rebuilding. But who's going to volunteer? Mm -hmm. Who is going to be up for the broader cultural project of rebuilding, of reconstruction, if we haven't called people back to the word, the fullness of the word of God in its ap concrete application to all of life? And so I thought, yes, Ezra the Scholar, because the Ezra Institute is a Christian world and life you think tank and training organization. We're not we're not a polit political activist organization. I thought Ezra 
is our namesake. He's the model. He's the one who went to the law word of God and called the people back to faithfulness and away from syncretism, hence the name Ezra Institute. That's very interesting to hear the um, derivation of, you know, I always believe that you have to give yourself a name and that you have to then make what you do reflective of your name. So when Dr. Rush Jr. started Chalcedon, he was referencing the Council of Chalcedon. And I would say as a think tank, like the Ezra Institute is the think tank, it was all about helping people become self-governing so that they could extend government. Well, at his memorial service back in 2001, one of the people who eulogized him said, and who can we compare Rush Dooney to? And I thought for sure he was going to say Nehemiah, but he said Ezra, right? I did not and, know that. Yeah. And, and the interesting part is that hearing your description of it would have been hard for Nehemiah to become successful if there hadn't been an Ezra. But Dr. Rush Dooney, during the years that I knew him, and then, of course, reading his books and things like that, always said he was skimming the surface. He was starting the conversation. And um, he envisioned and hoped for things like the Ezra Institute. So I don't know if you ever met him in person, but I can tell you as someone close to him, he would have smiled at the work you were doing and said he got it. He got what I was going after. Well, I mean, that is a very interesting story. I, I, uh, I've read a, uh, an awful lot of um, Rush Dooney's work, and, and, and that includes many of the historic uh, Chalcedon reports and the, uh, the journal, uh, including um, some time ago the accounts of his funeral. But I did not know. Uh, I was not aware of that story. So that is uh, that is that's very, very interesting. I know that um, Dr. Rush Dooney used to say that uh, he considered what he was doing as an application and extension of the thinking of Van Til, autonomy or theonomy, no neutrality, uh, that whole presuppositional transcendental direction of thinking. And um, although I did not personally have the privilege of meeting Dr. Rush Dooney, I'm only 49 now and Ezra's been, Ezra Institute's been around for 15 years um so I I have met Mark and uh came to California to meet with him some years ago while I was doing my master's research and was focused in on the thought of um RJ Rushduni for for much of that research uh, so I think as, if memory serves Dr Rushduni died in 2001 yes and uh, Ezra was formed in in 2009 and uh, I was still in 2001. I was still living in in England and and hadn't even heard at that time of Dr. Rushduni's work. But it is very encouraging. I've I've often talked with some of the people that uh, knew him and worked with him well, uh, who have said to me he would have been thrilled by the existence and ministry and work of the institute. And certainly, I think of what we are doing. Um, as again, uh, extending, hopefully deepening, refining, sharpening, uh, and, um, expanding the direction of, uh, Dr. Rush Dooney's thinking in this whole area of cultural renewal, cultural reformation, and uh, a Christian view of the various spheres of government. Yes. One of the things I especially like about your emphasis is that you call yourself a cultural apologist. Now, 
many people are be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. And it always seems to reduce down to Jesus saved me as a sinner, but they stop there. It's like, he saved me as a sinner. Why? Well, he just needed less sinners. I mean, I guess that you're just another notch on the wall, but you speak about being a cultural apologist. Explain why you think that distinction is important. Well, traditional Christian apologetics that most people are familiar with that you've just talked about and that important verse in first peter three fifteen, um which actually again i think sometimes we don't pay sufficient attention to how peter begins that because he says set apart christ as lord in the very root of your being so you know it is about fundamentally christ's lordship but at, at any rate most people when they hear the word apologetics they think of questions like does god exist what about evil and suffering in the world? Uh, what about uh, other religions, comparative religion? And what can we say about the uniqueness of Christ, moral ethics? You know, there's usually four or five sort of fundamental questions. Now, of course, those questions are important. And I spent many years um, doing all kinds of debates on the existence of God and so on. Now, I would do it in a in a, a presuppositional, transcendental fashion, as I'd uh, learned it from the likes of um, Van Til and and uh, and, and Doiverd and Rashtuni. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I was engaged in those traditional areas of Christian apologetics. And what tends to happen is many people think, well, there, there's these sort of evangelism for intellectuals called Christian apologetics. And um, most people do evangelism and there's a few people with IQs over 120 and they do apologetics. And, you know, it's all about evidences and this, that and the other. And so it's not for me. It's not, it's not my bag. And and so they they don't then really engage with it. Now, I would say that the kind of apologetics there that we're referring to is the sort that emerged during the so-called enlightenment um, has a, it has a rationalistic uh, emphasis in general unless it's retooled and reworked in a in a presuppositional direction and it emerged because it was seeking to answer the kinds of questions that were being asked primarily in the 18th and 19th century um, and the early part of the 20th century but as i said earlier th the kinds of questions that people are asking in an increasingly biblically illiterate age are are different the other issue is that um we tended to think of cultural apologetics as uh, sorry of christian apologetics as fundamentally just about arguments for the intellect you know following out the the these uh, following arguments so that you might have a a favorable environment created for people to then accept jesus um and become christians and that there ends the task of christian apologetics that it it really is just about uh being a handmaiden to evangelism now i grant that there is a role for christian apologetics in the task of evangelism but i like to think much more in terms of evangelization and that is where um christian cultural apolog apologetics comes in the way i would describe it is this if you think about um a very very large tent a big marquee i would say that that is cultural apologetics and that what we've called apologetics until recently is only one of the stalls only one of the tables or stands in the marquee so a cultural apologetic is about the defense of the Christian philosophy of life. 
It's about defending the fullness of the Christian vision of reality uh, in terms of true worship. And there are various aspects to that. And what we tended to have tended to think of as Christian apologetics, basically assisting in evangelism, is just one table. It's just one stall inside that tent of that great task of defending and extending the kingdom of God. Now, the word culture, as I, I know that you would know, Andrea, is derived actually or has a root in a, a Latin word uh, that has a sort of agricultural uh, entomology, a kind of agricultural history, and and it's tied to worship, worship. And we still retain a memory of that in the word cultus. We think of the cults, and when we think of cults, we think of things like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, various uh, aberrant uh, religious perspectives that are sort of pseudo-derived from the Christian faith. We talk about the cults. Worship, because culture ultimately is about worship. And uh, I would tie that, as um, the great Herman Bavink does, actually, to the original cultural mandate to rule and subdue. And that actually, fundamentally, the calling of human beings in the world, as you say, is not to just get saved, to have their sins forgiven. And that, because you, as you said, then what? The, the fundamental calling is to serve God, to exercise dominion, to turn creation into a God-glorifying culture. And the Bible has a word for that God-glorifying culture. It's called the kingdom of God. So a cultural apologetic is about uh, a holistic worldview defense of the Christian philosophy of life as, I, as it has a bearing on the various aspects and spheres of life. So early on for me, as I began to wrestle with this, when I was working in the field of what I would call a traditional, the, the small table area of Christian apologetics, I was asking myself, Andrea, okay, I'm defending the existence of God. I'm, I'm helping people come to faith in Christ. But all these questions that people are answering, I'm not, not many people are asking me anymore, does God exist? They're asking what kind of God exists? What, what is he like? And the, the challenges that uh, I am facing, I thought, well, where's the defense of a Christian view of the family? Where's the defense of the Christian view of human identity and sexuality? Where's the defense of a Christian view of law? Where's the defense of the Christian view of politics? Where's the defense of the Christian view of the arts and of economics? And I began to think about the Christian philosophy of life and why in Christian apologetics we weren't defending that, because this was where the faith was being fundamentally challenged and where a, a pagan secular humanistic faith was being applied. It was being applied in politics, applied in the law, applied in education applied in uh, life issues, applied in the arts, applied in the sciences, and we seem to have nothing to say there. Uh, it was as though our task ends when we give people some arguments about the divinity of Jesus, and we help, help people to put their faith and trust in him, and that's it. And I thought there's surely more to the task than that. So, Yes, I really sort of took on Cornelius Van Til's definition of apologetics as the defense of the Christian philosophy of life and realized that the task fundamentally 
was helping people see both the truth, but also the desirability, the beauty, the applicability of a comprehensive biblical faith. And that is a cultural apologetic. That is a a, a defense of the faith that applies to every area of life and culture is not just about the idea of my personal salvation. As important as that is, it's much more than that. I've been saved from what to what. And so a cultural apologetic is, is, is our agenda. Okay. So many people who will call themselves Christians and have this limited view, we've got to get as many people onto the ark as possible, right? That's our job. And whether or not they know it, they're basically ascribing to a two-kingdom theology. There's the kingdom of God, and then there's the kingdom of man. And instead of looking at the kingdom of man as a usurpation of a takeover of part of the territory of the kingdom of God, They're more than happy to just say, our job is to help people see their need for Christ. And then I find a lot of nice people and a lot of well-meaning people really don't know what to do with themselves. So, you know, they'll have another Bible study in church or they'll have, you know, fellowship meetings where they'll enjoy each other. But they've lost this cultural mandate because they think it's not important. Where did that come from? Well, that's, uh, that's quite a complex story. And I, I, I talk a bit about that too in my, in my latest book, Ruler of Kings, um, towards a, a Christian vision of, of government. This sort of, um, radical division, the, uh, and this truncation of the gospel that, uh, that you're talking about, uh, has roots actually right back in Greek philosophy. And uh, without wanting to uh, bamboozle or bore our, our listeners, just just very quickly, in the basically in the medieval period, medieval thought sort of reached its apogee with the thinking of uh, of a theologian um, and apologist called Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas was concerned to well, he was actually charged by the Pope with interpreting Aristotle for the Church. And as he was trying to face down the unbelief of his own period and uh, Islam, which was using the resources of Aristotle and Greek philosophy, he tried to synthesize Aristotle's thought with biblical faith. Essentially, in a nutshell, created a two-story view of reality. We, We can call them nature and grace. This This division, basically, of life essentially said there is a that that human reason human thinking is good as far as it goes without regeneration without christ without special revelation man's reason his uh his natural abilities were only um he only lost the gift of faith at the fall a special gift a super added gift but he isn't radically fallen. His reason isn't radically broken. And so when it comes to things like politics and law and education and all of these things, human reason, theories of, 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 of natural law drawn, you know, from the Stoics and from the Greeks, these are good as far as they go. But what we, for eternal salvation, what we need is the redemptive message of Christ and of the Bible, and we need the life of the church. And so the highest institution in society is the state, and uh, 
that helps bring us to to do an idea of justice and 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 uh, morality but for eternal salvation we need the added gift of the lord jesus christ for grace and salvation and for heaven and effectively what this did was create a double decker bus view of reality i know those are probably not quite so familiar in the u.s but iconically i'm sure the americans are aware i know they are of the 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 red double decker bus in london england and uh you know the the the, this method of public public transport where you've got two decks a lower story and an upper story and this is perhaps a helpful illustration i think it was one employed by francis schaeffer uh to say that this nature grace view this two kingdoms view this dualistic view in dividing reality into a supernatural and a natural component puts basically christianity in the upper story of the supernatural and it says that christianity is about the soul the upper story not the body and it's a, a concerned with the life of the church your personal salvation, your spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible reading, uh, Bible studies, you said, and ultimately going to heaven. That's the upper story. That's really important. That's where the church is operative. But on the lower story, you have culture, politics, law, education, the arts, the sciences, uh, family. All of these things are natural or as the two kingdoms theorists would say common you have a common kingdom and then you have a redemptive kingdom nature grace and uh the lower story is just not that important i mean it's there we have to live in it uh, we have to move through life in it but what's really important the stuff that's really important is not on the lower story it's in the upper story and yes at the end of all of this we'll just about escape this creation with a resurrected body but everything else gone done burned up and so if you're going to really serve the lord well then it needs to be something to do with the institutional life of the church maybe you're arranging flowers or baking cookies or you're preaching or you're an elder or whatever and of course that was there in the scholastic medieval view that if you really wanted to serve the lord you 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 adopted a monastic life you withdrew from the world you were cloistered you rejected marriage and children uh you took a vow of poverty uh and you lived isolated uh from the rest of the world because that was to be spiritual and we've got an evangelical and reformed version of that now. So that's where that idea basically comes from. The problem is when you take that image of the double-decker bus and you ask yourself, okay, so we're going to say the upper story, spirituality, Bible reading, prayer, that's all on the upper story. Um, that's what's really important. Culture, education, law, politics, the sciences, arts, culture, that's on the lower story. That's a lot less important, if important at all. Where is the driver of the bus? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. The driver is always on the lower deck. And then we wonder why culture is driven off a cliff. And here we are in the West asking ourselves, what on earth happened that we now can't tell the difference between a man and a woman? And we think there are 70 plus gender identities. Well, because we've said man's reason is good as far as, is, is, is good as far as it goes. And there's this common kingdom and that doesn't need to submit to Christ and his lordship and his word. Uh, we just need to worry about the upper story. And then we develop eschatologies of escape from the world so that with um, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye and whoever else, we can be uh, just leave people behind. Right. Uh, and that we don't have to take responsibility 
for our culture. So that really goes right back to the attempt to synthesize Greek philosophy with Christianity. And there's a pattern in scripture, even during the time of Elijah and Elisha, Israel was very involved with syncretism. And quite frankly, it's kind of easier to get along with the pagan and the heathen if you don't challenge them. But don't you think that the whole viewpoint of theonomy, God's law is the way in which we know what is justice, what is truth, that the application of an unapologetic, and I don't mean in the terms of apologetics as we were referring to, not saying I'm sorry for the law of God. I know that's kind of harsh. I, I, you know, so we become marketing agents for God because we, you know, we don't want people to get a bad idea of him, but apparently a lot of people have a bad idea of him because his law is a prescription for his will. So talk a little bit, if you will, about the need for theonomy rule by God's law in every sphere, if we're going to take dominion in Jesus' name? Well, of course, this is uh, one of the most uh, critical points. And of course, there was much of what uh, Dr. Rushduni had to, to say was concerned with the need for fighting. Uh, you can't, you know, basically, you can't fight something with nothing. We can't advance the kingdom and talk about the Christ dominion and then taking dominion as prophets, priests and kings in the Lord Jesus Christ without the kingdom tools. And um, when you hear Christians very often talk about the law of God, they often talk about it as though it has no relevance to them. It was only relevant to the ancient people of Israel, somehow not binding on them and so on. But this was not true even in ancient Israel. First of all, when the Hebrews left Egypt, the scripture says they left a mixed multitude. There were Egyptians amongst them who believed the message that Moses had given. And um, then we see the uh, the people of Israel picking up families. You've got Moses' father-in-law, of course, tribes, uh, Rahab and her family and extended family all the way through their existence. Uh, and in Deuteronomy 4, God is very clear that the law that he is giving to them, this covenant law that he's giving to them, is to be for a model to the pagan nations around them. That uh, they're going to look at Israel and they're going to say, who has a God like this God? Who has laws so righteous and just as these that I'm setting forth before you today? So that here was going to be the model and um, we often don't ask ourselves, you know, why was it then that God drove out the Canaanites before before Israel, the covenant people? It's because of their sin. We know that, that Israel, the Hebrews, were in Egypt for 400 years so that the sin of the Canaanites, Scripture says, would reach full measure. It was only then that God unleashed his judgment on them. Well, what in, did he judge the Canaanites in terms of some Canitic pagan standard of law or some abstract uh, ancient philosophical conception of righteousness and justice no he judged them in terms of the standards of god's law this was true of the prophecies of amos as well to the pagan nations around he prophesied to the pagan nations in terms of the law of god and don't forget god warned israel he says if you commit the same sins as the canaanites i'm going to spew you out as well You'll be judged as well. That's what the captivities of Israel were all about. Their apostasy, their 
their rebellion when when jonah is sent to the heart of the assyrian empire in nineveh to call them to repentance what do we think he was doing calling them to repentance in terms of some abstract assyrian conception of natural law or or some uh, some uh, specialized knowledge of assyrian coursistry no he was calling uh, the assyrians to repentance in terms of the standards of god's law and this is because ultimately as the prophet isaiah says the nations have violated the everlasting covenant what is that well uh, in the book of genesis at the at the beginning of creation we read the 10 words the 10 words of creation it's 10 acts of creation and when the uh, hebrews are receiving the covenant law they receive the 10 words again the 10 words of creation the 10 words of god's law this is a creation law this is a republication of god's creation law word god is republishing but this time specifically to a people that he's calling to be prophets priests and kings what does that what does that mean we know that israel was called to be a royal priesthood as peter says the churches today he takes that same imagery on that god assigns to israel and says you are now a kingly priesthood well they were kingly priesthood because of their function in bearing the covenant law and promises about the messiah to the nations the 10 words of creation the 10 words of the law republishing the creation law this law was for all the nations this was god's law that jesus then as the messiah as the promised one as the greater moses as the greater joshua who is going into you know in christ we are like the greater joshua not going into now that strip of land in palestine only but into all the world to conquer it for the lord jesus christ uh and we have been before we can do that we have to be given his covenant law so the so the the greater moses the lord jesus his life remember recapitulates the story of israel he goes through the waters he goes through the waters of baptism he then goes out into the wilderness not for 40 years but for 40 days to recapitulate the journey of israel and there as the truly obedient son he overcomes the temptation of satan unlike the israelites who fell in the wilderness for their disobedience and how does jesus defeat the temptations of the evil one with the law of god he quotes the law of god the book of deuteronomy and then he comes back and then he goes up onto the mountain as the greater moses to expound the law and he says i've not come to abolish the law i've come to fulfill it i've come to put it into force and there the giver of the law himself who is jesus christ expounds his own law and he doesn't say you've heard moses say but i'm going to tell you something else he says you've heard that it was said you've heard the erroneous expositions of the law of the scribes and pharisees but i'm going to tell you the full meaning of the law i'm going to bring the law to its completion its fullness its total meaning and that's why by the way andrea the dispensationalists were so keen to dispense with the sermon on the mount in fact uh, lewis berry chafer of dallas you know said well that the T sermon on the mount is not for christians 
It's for an older dispensation. The Lord's Prayer is not for, because it talks about thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Well, that's not for Christians either. And so you have to start hacking up the Bible and throwing various parts out. You'd have to throw out First Timothy 1, where Paul says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So if we are, as you've alluded to already, to, to be engaged in this process of rebuilding of in our greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus, going into the promised land, which the scripture says is now the whole earth. The meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And Paul is very clear uh, that um, even as he talks to children and their obedience to God's law in Ephesians, uh, with respect to honoring their parents, he says that it may go well with you and you might live, live long, not in the land, he says, but in the earth. In Romans 4, he tells us we're inheriting the whole cosmos. So we are now to go out in terms of the redemptive work of Christ, the ascension of Christ, but not just the ascension of Christ, the session of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now seated at the right hand of all power and authority, as the apostle Peter tells us in First Peter, as the, the apostles tell us in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, he's bringing all things into subjection to himself. And in Christ now, as his kingly priesthood, we go out into the world with the law word of God in terms of the lordship of Jesus Christ, who said, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Therefore, you can go and disciple, teach the nations, not just an ABC, accept, believe, commit so that you can go to heaven, but no, everything I have commanded you. And then you're going to baptize not just people, individuals, uh, but nations, ethnoi, not just anthropoi, nations. And you're going to lead them into a, the obedience of faith because the coastlands, as the prophet says, wait for his law. So the notion that we could go out in faith to uh, in terms of the, 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 the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, to uh, bring to to basically participate in the reconciliation of all things to God in Christ, because scripture says you've been given a ministry of reconciliation. And so if Christ is subjecting all things to himself and I as a Christian am in Christ seated in heavenly places, as the scripture says, then I participate as one who is in Christ in the bringing into subjection of all things unto and under the lordship of jesus christ i have the privilege of participating in that and i do so in terms of bringing about the obedience of faith in christ repentance faith and then obedience to god's law word his kingdom charter his manifesto for the world and where the hebrews failed where israel failed jesus says the kingdom is taken from you and it's given to a people who will bring forth the fruits thereof. And so we are about now as the truly obedient sons of Abraham uh, under the greater priest Melchizedek, bringing all of creation to obey the lordship of Christ in terms of his kingdom purpose. We cannot do that without the manifesto of his Lord. Exactly. You know, you brought up um, the Sermon on the Mount and I've, you know, read Dr. Rush Judy's book on it, and it opened the door for me because I, I'm not a scholar by nature, nor was I before my conversion, 
but the word meek. Blessed are the meek. Mm -hmm. And I think modern Christians think the people who aren't offensive, the people who say nice things. But he points out that it means those who were broken to harness. In other words, we're not Mm -hmm. wild horses anymore. We are harnessed by the word of God, by the spirit of God living within us. And I know a lot of Christians today, and I get to interact with them, those that understand theonomy and those that don't, and those that even say so much as they reject it, they're dismayed because they're saying, look, all this opposition, we're under persecution. Oh, it wasn't like this when I was growing up. And they miss the fact that the reason that the enemy of God is now full throttle trying to shut true believers up is because we are being meek. We are broken to the harness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not saying, oh, I'm sorry that this offends you. We're not trying to be offensive, but the gospel is offensive to those who are perishing. So I've seen you in some of your videos and you're the only guy who is promoting a world and life view and you're getting attacked. And most recently in Canada, you received a lot of pushback. Talk a little bit about that pushback mm-hmm. and why, quite frankly, you're not afraid of them. Well, you make a great point, uh, Andrea, about uh, meekness. Um, the Bible says that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Yet look at the life of Moses um, and the way he lived and served the Lord. Meekness is the gentleness of the strong. It's not the it's not the surrender of the claims of Christ to an ungodly world. Uh, the challenge in the Canadian landscape recently has been that our work has drawn national attention. The, the CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, that's the, for, for those who are perhaps more familiar with the UK, uh, that's the equivalent of the BBC. So it is um, the largest uh, and most dominant media organization in Canada. I know this will be hard for Americans to get their heads around, but it receives $1.3 billion of state taxpayer funding um, of about a $1.5, $1.6 billion budget. So, uh, it is, it is basically a state funded arm of the, of the federal government. It's a state media organization. And, uh, they had become concerned the, uh, that there was a Christian reform movement growing and flourishing in Canada with churches and pastors and organizations that were standing up for the freedom of the church, for the lordship of Jesus Christ, were resisting tyranny, were resisting the sexualization of our children, resisting the the uh, so-called LGBTQ uh, movement that is ubiquitous now in, in the West, uh, and were openly speaking uh, in defense of a Christian world and life view, and also were beginning to get involved in regional political life uh, on school boards uh, and involved in municipal politics and beginning to organize around a christian view of family of law of politics of education and you know the ezra institute has been plugging away in canada for 15 years and you never quite know how much impact you're having but the cbc in a basically a front page news article called 
the fundamentalist uh, uh, movement in Canada. And I explain in my response how they muddle up their terms and and get confused about a lot of things, as you would expect from liberal journalists. But uh, it's it's an article about this growing fundamentalist movement in Canada. But it also was accompanied by a documentary, a radio podcast documentary on Front Burner. And uh, in that documentary, they refer to the Ezra Institute as the think tank at the heart of the Christian fundamentalist movement in Canada. Uh, we discover it in this documentary that they've been making secret recordings. Their invest- investigative journalists have been making secret recordings in our churches, at our conferences, um, trying to, I guess, find a smoking gun, sort of hot mic incidents that they can uh, accuse us of, of uh, goodness knows what uh for basically the defense of the faith and so but we are unashamed uh we continue uh, with boldness we've been blessed to be able to inspire uh resistance during the whole lockdown debacle um i crafted something called the niagara declaration which advances the principles of christ's lordship sphere sovereignty the role of god's law word um, that were signed by hundreds of churches and helped galvanize resistance in in Canada. There were pastors who went to prison, yes, and uh, but who were reading the mission of God. We had we learned of a case in in the UK where Scottish pastors who had been reading the mission of God co- took the Scottish government to court over the lockdown of the church, and they won the case. And the High Court found the lockdown of the church illegal and ordered the government to open them. Um, so we've been really encouraged uh, and blessed and inspired in in our work because you sometimes you think you're just laboring quietly and in an isolated way at times in a lonely corner um but over the last few years we've seen uh the growth of interest and support for the message uh the kingdom message the lordship of christ it's all been god's work not our work and now there are significant numbers of churches and organizations and leaders who will not bend and buckle and cave and be silent in the face of the uh, massive assault against Christianity, against the, uh, the biblical faith, against the Christian family, against Christian education, and increasingly totalitarian laws. You may you may be aware, Andrea, that Canada last year passed Bill C-4. Bill C-4 basically criminalizes the pastoral care of pastors in their own churches for people struggling with same-sex desire or gender confusion gender uh, and uh, gender confusion um if a canadian pastor is reported for for helping counseling such a person even a consenting adult they can go to prison for up to five years that's the kind of context that many christians even in the west now are serving in and um, the message of the Ezra Institute about Christ's lordship, coming back to God's law word, advancing his kingdom, taking our responsibility and exercising dominion. We've been privileged and blessed to see that galvanizing believers, inspiring and instructing a whole new generation of pastors and leaders to be faithful. And we're not afraid. No, we're not. Christ has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, of power and of sound mind. And we don't know historically uh, what we're going to face. History does this in its upward trajectory towards Christ's total victory. There are times of uh, a decline in apostasy and there are times of faithfulness and victory. And we don't know how long this period of oppression and increased persecution is going to last. But we know that in the midst of it, if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen to that. 
And I think without calling it good news that they're shooting at us, the truth is they've always been shooting at us. The reality is once you realize somebody is shooting at you, then you can use the defensive weapon, the full armor of God that we're told, but use the sword. And when I've seen you in your debates, it's like you're using the sword and humanism, paganism, heathenism, all at their, there's nothing there. The only substance they have is to make you think they're bigger than they are. Well, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And they don't want to hear that message spoken because deep down inside, they know it's true. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I was just going through my mind as you were speaking there. Uh, one of uh, Dr. Rushdoony's lectures or sermons uh, where he, I remember him talking about um, all the legal challenges um, to control church property and, and Christian schools and so on. And um, he was talking about how the state would eventually want to come for our churches. And I remember him saying in his very characteristic way, they'll do it one of these days. Well, he said that, uh, you know, 50 years ago. And in Canada, they are doing it. Um, they literally are coming for the pregnancy care centers to remove their charitable status. They're coming for pastors to criminalize their pastoral care and counseling and teaching. This is actually happening but at the same time, Satan often overplays his hand. And what's happened is this with this increase, this stepping up of um, oppression and marginalization and persecution, it has actually made the lines very clear. It's increasingly forcing people to say, choose you this day whom you will serve. If it be Christ, if it be the Lord, if it be Jehovah, serve him. If it's Baal, if it's the state, uh, then serve him. And um, so, Andrea, I mean, the remarkable thing is that um, and without sort of um, giving you stats to, to make you look like I'm bragging over the over the podcast uh, here, the, the last three years where we've seen this massive uptick in in pressure against the church and uh, marginalization and increased persecution, the engagement with our ministry, the engagement with our resources, the interest in our programs, um, the the, the you know re resource sales podcast listeners it's been exponential growth because uh beyond what we could have ever imagined because the christians by god's grace are slowly in certain quarters beginning to wake up and realize hang on a minute maybe what these prophetic ministries have been saying which is what really a christian apologetic and a christian philosophy really is it's christian prophecy uh, maybe there's something in this. How did it come to this? And so that pressure is causing many Christians to begin to say, we need to stand. Of course, it's for others, it's, it's resulting in a, uh, a, a people, um, what does the scripture say there? The text is on the tip of my tongue. Um, their hearts are failing them for fear. And uh, we're seeing a, a huge apostasy as well in the churches, especially over the sexuality and identity issue. But at the same time, God is working with a growing remnant. And uh, I am convinced that uh, uh, in God's due time, there is going to be a significant turning back to the Lord. Right. I was just reading today one of Dr. Rush Dooney's essays from 1971. Okay. Um, he could have written it yesterday, but we know he didn't. And this is what he has to say. He said, 
Every man who builds has his eye on the future, and he is busy making it for when tomorrow comes. It is his work that stands in it, whereas all the whining and complaining of the bewailers is gone with the wind. The world was not empty when we came into it. Other men have labored, and we have entered into their labors. Now, in a time of cultural decay, the need to rebuild is especially urgent, and as always, it takes time, money, and work. Those unwilling to pay the price and those who discourage easily have no future. Let them eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow they die. Of such men, Solomon said, Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be heavy of heart. He says, Meanwhile, the work of reconstruction goes on all around you. True, new foundations do not loom as large as old structures, but they are there. And then he ends, like he typically did, with a question. But where are you? Are you in the old structures or building on the new foundations? And that, to me, seems to be what the Ezra Institute is all about. Your website says you're into the restoration of the gospel confidence among God's people, renewing an understanding of the scope and power of the word of God, rebuilding a Christian philosophy of life for every sphere, and recovering a message of redemption that claims all of creation as the theater of God's glory. I want people to go to your website. How do they get there, and how do they get your book, The Mission of God? Yeah, thanks, Andrea. So um, the website is ezrainstitute.com. We have there all kinds of uh, resources, lectures, sermons, uh, I would really encourage people to subscribe to our podcast wherever they get their podcasts. It's called the Podcast for Cultural Reformation, Podcast for Cultural Reformation. Um, and that, ha- that, uh, is Worldview Wednesdays. That comes out weekly on, on a Wednesday. And then if you click the store button on our website, that takes you to our, uh, books, our journal Jubilee, um, and our books and resources. If, um, if it's more convenient, of course, my my major works, uh, Mission of God, Gospel Culture, Gospel Witness, Ruler of Kings, Why I Still Believe, these are also all available at Amazon.com. Uh, so just so anybody listening saying, well, I don't know, I already support Calcedon. Can I, can I also support the Ezra Institute? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, the tithe and a knowledge of what we're supposed to be investing in the returns will be much greater to the degree that you help the various organizations that are sort of working in an Ezra capacity. Um, not all of them are named the Ezra Institute, but when it comes right down to it, we may not live long enough to see all things come back into synchronization with Jesus Christ, right? But we mm-hmm. want to be found faithful and just looking through the resources on your website and realizing, well, do I have time for another podcast? Yes, you do. (laughs) Listen to my podcast, listen to that podcast, listen to lots of things because the real testimony will be equipped Christians who wherever they have influence and jurisdiction will apply it. And I think organizations like Calcedon and the Ezra Institute, and there are many others, help people do just that. And so I'm very encouraged to introduce you to those who never heard of you. And for those who said, "Ah, I was going to buy that book. Now's the time to buy that book. (laughs) 
Well, I'm very grateful to you, Andrea, for having me um, on the show and uh, for exposing the audience to the Ezra Institute. There's, there's one other thing that we do actually offer that people will see on the site, which I think can supplement actually what Calcedon is doing, which is we offer um, in-person uh, training uh, programs in biblical worldview, cultural apologetics. So we have a, a worldview leadership academy for teens, and that's being offered in in the usa next year as well and uh, we have our international academy for cultural leadership that's for um, students and uh, young professionals um, and that's being offered in the usa next year as well and uh, we have conferences our mission of god conference we offer pastors colloquium so there's actually opportunity to come together for multi-day training and invest in that next generation because as you say we have to plant trees the shade of which we may never sit in we may not see it all happen in our time. We won't, but we have to be ready to, uh, I think it was Martin Luther who was once asked if it was, if you knew it was going to be the end of the world tomorrow, what would you do? He said, I'd plant a tree. Yes. And, uh, I think we have to invest in, in tomorrow. Um, because that's what the multi-generational task of rebuilding and reconstruction actually is. Very good. Well, thank you for your time. And, um, it's been delightful for me and I hope it's been delightful and informative for others. Thank, thank you so much. Out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you get a hold of me, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.